Gracious and merciful God, you have brought us again to this glad season where we celebrate the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grant, God, that his Spirit may be born anew in our hearts this day and that we might joyfully welcome him to reign over us. We've gathered here tonight to remember once again the timeless story of the birth of Christ. In the excitement of this night, we ask that you would quiet our minds, that you would quiet our hearts, that we might know the peace and the fullness of this holy, holy time. You have favored us, Lord, with the greatest gift that was ever given, your only begotten Son. May we never take this gift for granted. May our songs of praise never fade. And may we treasure it in our hearts always and forever. On this holy night, we ask that you would draw us into this mystery of your love. Bless all of us gathered here. May peace, hope, joy, and love ring in our hearts and reverberate throughout our community tonight. In the name of Jesus Christ, the newborn King. Amen. Merry Christmas, everybody. It's not Christmas yet. Y'all are, y'all are worse than my son, I swear. We still, got, we still got a few more hours. That's all right. That's all right. Um, welcome, seriously. Glad, so glad to see everybody. I think this is, a, this is a first for me anyway. I think we got more guests here than we, than we have actual members and attenders. So that's, that's pretty awesome. So glad to see a lot of faces out there that I didn't know. I tried to speak to you briefly out there um, when you walked in. If I, happened, if I happened to have seen you, if I didn't, please don't think that I'm snobby. I just didn't get a chance to. Um, but really, really, it's great to see out, see all those faces out there that I don't recognize. I'm so glad that you guys chose to came and, uh, come and just spend a few moments with us at Bemis United Methodist tonight. The Christmas Eve service um, is real, has become, it's among a, a handful of special services that we participate in throughout the year, and, it, and, it's, and it's come to be one of, my, one of my favorites, probably for a lot of reasons. Uh, but I think one of them, more than, more, than, more than most, would be just the simple fact there seems to be a a real spirit of, um, of peace, but also a real spirit of, of deep reverence and, and deep reflection. Uh, I think our, our, two, our two most holiest of days in the Christian calendar are Easter and, and Christmas, and uh, I can't decide, in my opinion, which, is, which seems to be the holiest of them for me. Uh, so I guess they're just as equally holy. But this is a special night, and it's one of those nights that we share together something that's consistent across all Christian beliefs, all Christian belief systems, all Christian denominations, Christian traditions that have existed for over 2,000 years. We remember the birth of Jesus. We remember, we, remember the, uh, we remember the Virgin Mary. We remember the birth of Christ. Christ who came to us not as a mighty warrior, but Christ who came to us through a helpless, defenseless child who was born to a poor couple who had no social status, nothing special about them whatsoever, in a dirty dingy stable that was reserved for animals. I kind of learned recently it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a stable as we kind of think, have come to think of stables. You know, we have a, we have a beautiful thing that we do um, every Christmas prior to Christmas. We'll do a live nativity, and it's beautiful. It's gorgeous, it's in, and I think people really get a lot out of it if they sit there and they kind of meditate on it for a minute. But it's nothing even remotely close to what the reality of the real stable was where Jesus was born, more than likely it was a cave. Uh, that again, was pretty stinky and reserved for animals. But this is how Christ came, this is how God decided to come. This is how Christ decided to come into the world, not among the richness 
and the kings and the rulers, but among the most humble, born to the most humble of people and the most humble of circumstances. It's what we in the church refer to as the incarnation, and that's one of those big theological words that, that we use sometimes in the church. But it basically just means, and this is, the, we talked about this last Sunday, and I, I could spend hours and hours and hours just, sit, just sitting in awe of this idea. But the incarnation is basically this idea that God, God, the creator of all, God who has always been, God who is, God who always will be, unfathomable, unexplainable, decided to come here in the form of a human. Jesus Christ, fully divine, fully human, got to experience the full human, the full, the fullness of what it meant to be a human being. And again, among all, all most, the most helpless and the most humble of circumstances, that blows my mind. It blows my mind to think about that. It's the simple fact that God, Jesus, divinity, came as flesh and bone. I want to read to you a short piece of scripture and um, if you guys happen to attend our service tomorrow, you're going to get a double dose of this scripture. Um, but I initially had not planned on using the scripture tonight. As a matter of fact, to be perfectly honest, I had initially planned on pretty much giving you guys the same sermon that I gave you last Christmas Eve. <laughs> pastoral, pastoral honesty. But something happened while I was while I was going over the scripture that I'm planning or was planning on using to, to, uh, tomorrow. And uh, as I considered it, you know, I felt that God just really kind of prompted me to, to share this with you guys tonight. Uh, more specifically, though, I really felt prompted to share it with two very specific groups, and I believe these groups are here tonight, two types of people, those who may not know the love of God and those who maybe sometimes question it or sometimes forget about it. Because I'm a pastor, and to be perfectly honest, I do the same thing. It's hard to embrace and live out the reality of God's all-encompassing, merciful, graceful love. I always feel like I fall short. I always feel like I miss the mark to some degree. I worry that I'm not enough. I worry that I don't do enough. And I'm sure that a lot of you, if not most of you, if not all of you, have had these thoughts at some point in your life reality is all of that stuff doesn't matter. God doesn't love me for who I am or for what I do or for what I don't do. God loves me because God loves me. God loves you because he loves you. So I just want to share this scripture and it's kind of out of an obscure book in the New Testament. It's the book of Titus. Really, really short, uh, short book. It should take you about all five minutes to read the whole thing, but it comes out of Titus chapter 3. It was verses 4 through 7. I'm going to read that to you and kind of talk about it just for a few minutes. And this is a letter, uh, like a lot of New Testament letters that were, that were written by the Apostle Paul. But Paul writes, When the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Let me repeat that. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs 
having the hope of eternal life. For our Methodist brethren, that's the word of God for the people of God. <laughs> I want you to look at how that very first verse that we read describes the character of God. Kindness and love. Paul breaks right into it. This is who God is. Kindness and love. Because of God's kindness and love. Because of our Savior. The save, because of that, our Savior. The Savior of the world was born. Because that's who God is. God is kind. God is love. The Bible, that's one of the few actual descriptions of who God is that's in the Bible. There's only three of them. One of them says God is love. And love was born on that Christmas day. Our Savior, again, the Savior of the world. Now, some of us may have forgotten. Some of us may have been brought up in the church. Y'all may have been here 50, 60, 70 years. Some of y'all might just be entering the church. Some of y'all may be somewhere in between. Some of y'all may not be part of a church at all, and that's all perfectly fine. What I want to say, though, is what does it mean, Savior? We always talk about that in the church, and that's another one of those churchy words, and if you're not part of the church, you don't get it. I think a lot of the people in the church don't, don't get it, and we need to be reminded of it sometimes. What does it mean when we say that he, Christ is our Savior? What is he saving us from? Well, he's saving us, number one, from our separation from God. He is saving us from what I just mentioned ago, that, in, that, that inability to live up to God's perfect ideals. He's saving us from our hopelessness, our helplessness to live up to those standards, to live up to God's greatest ideals of what? Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus summed up all of the expectations of God. All of, the, all of the ideals, if you look in the, in the Old Testament, there's several hundred laws written. Jesus brought them down to two, and they all, can, they all can be brought down to these two little things. Loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Still, those are simple to understand. They're not so easy to live out. And we do fall short. Christ saves us from that. He knows this. He knows that we are incapable in and of ourselves of being these things. Folks, there's not a person in this room tonight that's spotless, including this guy. Maybe at one point in my life, especially this guy. I still struggle with a lot of stuff. And I'll just be perfectly with you, honest with you on this Christmas Eve. I struggle with forgiving people sometimes. I struggle with loving my enemies. I struggle with resentments against people who have hurt me in the past, people who've caused me harm. I struggle, like many of you, with what I think is really the foundation of most sins and really most of the world's problems, and that's just good old-fashioned pride. Putting myself as a higher of importance than God, than God's ideals, as a higher importance than people. That's all pride is. But so much, so much stems from pride. Even though God may have grown me, and he has grown me spiritually over the years, 
you know, and, and I am a lot different. I'm a lot different than the ways that I think, the way that I speak, the way that I act. Folks, I am nowhere even remotely close to being able to live up to God's standards. And I may not know you personally, most of you, most of you I don't know personally, but I can say with 100% certainty tonight there's not a person in this room who lives up to those standards. But who is God? What is God? Our scripture tells us that God is kindness, that God is love. If you look at verse 5 of the text that I just read, it said that God is a God of mercy. So this kind, this loving, and this merciful God did something amazing on that occasion that we're celebrating tonight and tomorrow. Jesus Christ was born, and through Christ, through that Savior, we're healed. We are in a perfect relationship with God. We are restored. We are blameless. And we are absolutely perfect in the eyes of God, no matter how much we continue to fall short. There's a name for that. And in the church, what we call that is grace. And our scripture, again, spells it out for us. Very perfect words. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, I'll add to that, or things that we had not done, but because of his mercy through Jesus Christ. Simply put, God loves us because God loves us. Not because of anything we've done, not because of anything that we haven't done, but because that is who and what God is. In spite of us having messed up, in spite of us continuing to mess up, God still, and I love that word, God still pours out his grace, his kindness, his mercy, and his love on us. We don't earn it. It is absolutely freely given without condition. We, uh, we have a pretty great, if you guys ever want to come have a good time, we've got a pretty great Bible study on Wednesday nights. And uh, we tend to get some pretty, for some pretty good conversations. Sometimes those conversations can get kind of intense. Uh, but let, this last Wednesday, um, we, were talking about, we were talking about different sins. And we were talking about this, this idea of not living up to God's ideal. And specifically, what a couple of us hinted on or touched on is, we talked about how we human beings have a tendency to want to elevate certain sins over other sins. Usually it's the sins that other people are doing, the sins that we're not guilty of. Those are the bad ones, right? I'm okay. I'm good. But that's what it looks like. We want to exclude people that sin differently than we do. We want to take it upon ourselves to decide who's in and who's out. Grace tells us a different story, church, folks. The scandalous part of Christianity, one of the hardest part for so many of us to really grasp, even those who believe these things on the surface, one of the most scandalous parts about Christianity, one of the most scandalous parts, scandalous parts about the love, mercy, grace, kindness, and God is that we don't get to decide who's in and who's out guess what? We're all in. Every one of us. Not because of our good works, not because of our ability or because of our inability to live up to God's standards and ideals, not because we're good, not because we're bad, but because
because of Jesus, who we celebrate today through his birth, because of God's grace, because of God's indescribable, unfathomable love for his creation. I don't deserve it, and neither do you. But guess what? We got it. Y'all remember Oprah, right? You get a car, you get a car, you get a car. You, you're in, you're in, you're in, you're in. Grace, and that's what it looks like. In just a few minutes, we're going to uh, celebrate Holy Communion together. and uh, At the beginning of that, we're going to recite a prayer of confession and a, uh, a prayer of repentance, recognizing, admitting. This is one of the coolest things to me about our communion service is that we do this together. You know, it's not, it's not you know, confessing my sin to God in my, in my personal life. So this is one thing that's wonderful. We should, all, we should all, you know, inventory ourselves spiritually and admit to God what we fall short. But to me, there's something really special about this communion service. When we do this all together as a gathered body, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian with us tonight, doing this together, saying these words together, not just because we're reading them off a page, piece of paper, but because they're truly coming from our heart. To me, there's something really cool and really special about a gathered community of people who are confessing their failure to be able to lo live up to God's standards and loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving our neighbors, ourselves, confessing that, admitting it to God, to our brothers and our sisters, and receiving that forgiveness together. There's something just so very, very cool about that to me. And we're going to be doing that here in just a few moments. If you don't know, um, if you're not part of the Methodist Church, like a lot of other Protestant denominations, communion is one of two sacraments. We, we believe this is something that was instituted, that was given to us by Christ. It's one of two sacraments that we uh, celebrate in the Methodist Church. The other one is baptism. Uh, sometimes you might hear communion referred to as the Lord's Supper. Other churches sometimes refer to it as uh, the Eucharist. Uh, but the practice of communion was, if you didn't know this, the practice of communion was actually initiated by Christ. Uh, on the night before he died, we're going to receive bread. We're going to receive, we refer to it as wine. It's actually juice in, uh, in our church. But we're going to receive th these elements of bread and wine as, as, as uh, symbolic representatives of the body and the blood of Christ. The church has continued this sacred practice, against, again, across all denominational lines, all traditions for 2,000 years. And uh, one of the things that we do when we receive communion is, is we're drawn to remember Christ's great, greatest sacrifice his death his burial, his resurrection tonight of course we also remember and we're drawn to the reality of his miraculous birth one thing that we really believe, truly believe in our church is that we believe that Christ is very much present with us as we receive these elements together, Christ is with us at all times we know that but maybe there's just something a little extra special about receiving these elements together as a gathered body. We believe that communion is basically tangible evidence of God's grace and God's presence with us. In other words, it's something that we can see. It's something that we can taste. It's something that we can smell. It's something that we can feel. It is a physical reality of the invisible reality of God's presence, love, and grace for us. And when we do that, we're linked together with Christians and churches over a, over a period of 2,000 years who have been gathered together regularly to do this, to receive this. Something else that we do in the Methodist Church that might be a little bit unique to other traditions is that we welcome all people 
to receive Holy Communion at the table. It's not up to us who gets to receive God's grace, and that's our, that's our theological reasoning behind that. We believe this is an opportunity for everybody. We believe that God, Jesus, is so present during this time that people can receive God's grace through simply receiving these elements or experience God's grace. So we don't prohibit, we don't, we don't feel that we have the authority to prohibit anybody from receiving Holy Communion. So I invite you to do that today if you, if you feel so led to, to. Don't feel like you have to be a part of this church. Don't feel like you have to be a Methodist. In all reality, don't feel like you have to be a Christian. That's how powerful we believe the grace of God is and the love and the power of the Holy Spirit.